The way is narrow, and in that respect there are difficulties along the way. It's rarely a smooth ride. It's a roller coaster of faith as we a journey as of, of the journey of faith as we as we go along. A journey that leads from earth to heaven. A journey of ups and downs. And sometimes it's a very stormy journey. And our faith fails, and we feel like the Lord is oblivious, that He is sleeping, that He is not conscious of our concerns and we're tempted to ask Lord do you care does he care sometimes life can be very fearful sometimes we feel like the storm will swallow us up that we are being overwhelmed by the waves that we feel besieged consumed crushed and beaten storms are never easy and they can be very frightening I wonder, are you going through a storm tonight in your life? We know already that there are some of our church folks who are going through some difficulties in life, and we're upholding those people in prayer. But maybe you're here tonight, and you also feel like life's storms are just hammering at your vessel, and you feel as though you're sure to go under, that you're not going to uh, come out the other side. And this is exactly how the disciples felt in our text this evening. Wishing to withdraw from the crowds, the Lord Jesus commands them to get in their ship and to depart to the other side, to leave his hometown of Capernaum and to make their way into Decapolis and the region of Gadara. But once they get halfway across the sea, a storm is suddenly whipped up and they find that their lives are in danger and they are in peril and they're fighting for their very existence. Well, this storm has tremendous lessons for us tonight. It had lessons for them, and it has lessons for us. Notice in verses 23 and 24 that the storm is a crisis for the saints. It says, and when he was entered into his ship, his disciples followed him. Now, that's obviously not the disciples who are in the ship because he's with them. But that is some of those who were gathered in the crowd also got in boats and followed after him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now we've got to remember that his disciples were fishermen largely. And so in that respect, you would think that maybe they were a little foolish to launch out into the deep when it was evident that there was glowering clouds and that there was stormy weather on the way. But remember this, that fishermen in Bible times and sailors in Bible times did not have the advantage of satellite technology. They didn't have the meteorological departments that we now have the benefit of. And you know that even ours are not always that reliable, that sometimes they tell you it's going to be sunny when it rains and rainy when it's sunny. And uh, they can rarely tell you very far in advance, usually only a day or two in advance with any degree of great accuracy. But it was even worse in Bible times. They had no such mechanisms upon which they could fall back. And so they depended upon the prevailing conditions 
as they left port. It seemed okay when the Lord Jesus says we're going to depart to the other side. It looked like it was a clear night. The sea was not unduly rough. And there was no indication that the short crossing over Galilee would be anything other than smooth sailing. But then this storm comes, and it comes apparently out of nowhere. The word translated storm in our Bibles in respect to this event, and in particular in the Gospel of Mark, is that there's something peculiar about the storm. Let's look in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 4 for a moment, and verses 35 onward. Remember, when we read the other Gospels, as you've seen in your chronological readings, it sometimes fills in some of the missing pieces, doesn't it? Even as we saw last week, Matthew spoke about two men who came and spoke with the Lord. And then later we read in Luke of three men who came and spoke with the Lord. Matthew was unconcerned about the third man. And here in Mark's Gospel, uh, we get another account of the same event. It says, In the same day, when the evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. Verse 36, And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So in that respect, we find that word storm there, and it indicates something rather unusual. Uh, the Greek term indicates that this was no ordinary storm. Uh, this was not even a strong wind or a gale force wind. In fact, the suggestion is, in the Greek, that it was a whirlwind that came rushing down the valley and, and across the Sea of Galilee and pulling up the waves around the boat as they went. And so you can imagine that if they were caught in a whirlwind uh, or a tornado, if you like, that they were really in trouble out there in the midst of that sea. There was no way these disciples, with their limited resources, could possibly weather a storm like that. They were not equipped for dealing with tornadoes or that kind of wind. And so they had no idea that this was coming, and suddenly it comes rushing down the valley, straight into the Sea of Galilee, and over the point of where their ship was. Friends, that's life, isn't it? Because sometimes, you know, life can be fine, everything can be as it is this evening, sunny and clear and gentle and warm, and we're progressing nicely, and we're thinking to ourselves, isn't this rather lovely, when suddenly a raging storm comes into our lives. And that storm can be challenged in a moment. In a moment. You know, you could be just completely at peace with the world and get a phone call that brings bad news that changes everything. That storm might threaten everything you hold dear, your job, 
job, your home, your marriage, your family, your health. The storm may come as a bolt out of the blue, without warning, without mercy, without respect to your goals, without any consideration of what it was that you had planned to do that day or that week or that month or that year. That storm comes without respect of person. It doesn't matter who you are. Listen, you can be royalty, even as we've seen in recent weeks when our queen lost her husband. You can be royalty and be hit by a storm. The storm is a crisis of life. Any crisis, call it what you will, redundancy or cancer or stress or bereavement or depression or divorce, it's a crisis. And when you are in it, well, there seems to be no way out of it. There's certainly no immunity from the storms of life just because you've become a Christian. You know, if you could get out of all the problems of life by becoming a Christian, well, I would imagine everybody would become Christians. But Christians are not immune from storms. Indeed, if we belong to the Lord, the very opposite is true. Testing and trouble is going to be inevitable. We saw this even last Sunday. Uh, with the man who came and spoke with the Lord expecting that he might receive some kingdom benefits. You remember the scribe who, who inferred that somehow or other he might uh, be benefited by following the Lord Jesus. And the Lord tells him, now listen, even I as the king have nowhere to lay my head. I'm involved here in itinerant ministry. There are, there are no rosy roads to be taken. You're going to have to follow me along the difficult path. And he's making it clear there's going to be trouble. And Philippians says this, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. You know the world is a world of trouble. It's a world of hardship. That's why the news every night almost of the week is bad news, isn't it? You know, when you look at Clive Myrie or some of those broadcasters, Hugh Edwards or whoever it is you watch on your news broadcast, you know, he never, the first shot is usually not with him having a big gleaming happy face saying, I've got some great news for you all, is it? They're usually sitting there somber, somber and, and with, a, with a frown and, and they're now going to break out some bad news. And it's just one bad news story after another bad news story. You know, it's a wonder we even watch the news, the truth be told, because it should be called the bad news. Because it's all about trouble. And these disciples were in trouble. Job says, yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. He says, man that is born of woman is few of days, is a few days and full of trouble. These sinking disciples were in trouble. They were bailing out their ship fast. Now, you know, this is a kind of, well, I, you know, sometimes the, the, the authorized version understates things. Here it kind of overstates something. It says they were in the ship. And you imagine this great big galley ship, don't you? Uh, you imagine something like Sir Walter Raleigh would have uh, entered into, you know, with great big seals and pushing across the wind. But actually, the Sea of Galilee is a rather small lake. You know, a big galley ship isn't going to be, you know, suitable for sailing such a small stretch of water. And in fact, when the, the idea of the ship here is really a rather small boat. You know, it's the best thing I can liken it to is the gondolas that you might see in Venice. You know, something like that. 
uh, you know, would just take a, a few people inside and, and they'd be very open and quite low to the water. And so this water is pouring over the top into the ship and the boat is filling up fast. You know, the water's around their ankles and they're throwing that water out. Their hearts are pumping and they're terrified. And still these waves keep coming at them. They were staring death in the face and all the while the Lord is sleeping. You know, you know, you got to admire anybody who can sleep through a storm, haven't you? Especially a storm like this. And it seemed to them, and we can understand why, that he was rather indifferent to their trouble, that he was uncaring, that he was completely unresponsive to their needs. They cried out, Lord, save us, or we perish. Or as Mark puts it, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They said, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you love us? Aren't you interested in us? Aren't you willing to reach out to us? Aren't you moved by our trouble tonight? And I wonder, is that how you feel in your crises? Is that how you think in your storms? I wonder, do you feel as though the Lord is aloof, that he's completely dispassionate about the problems you're facing, that, that he's completely indifferent to your plight. If you have been here on Wednesday night, we would have shown you, of course, that that's not true, that the Lord takes the afflictions of his people as his own afflictions. And it's not true here either. The Lord was concerned for them, but they felt like he wasn't. And so the storm proves to be a crisis to the saint. But then the storm is of concern to sinners. There in the Gospel of Mark, as we read a parallel account, Mark makes a little observation which you kind of miss in Matthew's account when he says this, and there was also with him other little ships. Now, those other little ships are mentioned here in Matthew's account when it says his disciples followed him. So, as I said, those are not disciples who are in the boat with him, but disciples who are out of the boat following him in other little ships. And the word disciple in this context is used loosely. It's not referring to one who is completely committed to Christ, but one who is simply a, 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 a spectator, one who wants to hear more or know more or learn more or benefit in some way. And so the deal is that the Lord isn't in those ships. Now I want you to get that. You see, lost people have storms also, don't they? Uh, you know, they have problems also. They have heartaches. They have hurts. They have their own trials and their own difficulties. And you know, sometimes as Christians, we're rather like Asaph in Psalm 73, and we think to ourselves, well, the lost world, they have it easy uh, compared to us. And the grass is greener on their side of the fence. Well, do you really think that the unsaved have it better? I mean, ask yourself, uh, these people who are in these other little boats, these disciples who are following along from afar, are actually facing the same storm. But Christ isn't in their boat. Jesus isn't in their boat. You know, I'd rather be in the storm with him than be in the storm without him. Wouldn't you? And that's where many people are tonight. They're in a storm of life and they're in that storm without the Savior. 
And that's a difficult place for anyone to be. Their hearts are about to explode with grief and anguish. Their spirits are going to be crushed by the events that are surrounding them. Their lives are in tatters. Their minds are, are destroyed with fear and Christ is not in their boat. That's why so many are in total despair. <coughs> you know, the suicide rates in our country are, are going through the roof. This is one of the statistics that they don't show you on a graph each night of the week. They don't show you how many people are taking their lives. And they certainly don't tell you how many young men are taking their lives, which is a real crisis in our nation. Patrick Kelly was a young man who at the age of 15 wrote a poem. The poem is no masterpiece. It's written from the pen of a young boy who's in trouble. Like many other teens, he was disturbed by life and what he was observing around him. He was searching, but no one was there to help him with a word of hope or comfort or direction. And he wrote this, the sky is blue and way too high. I wish I could get beyond the sky. There's things up there better than dope. Is there some chance? Is there some hope? Stoned crazy. I'm out of my mind. I know there's something I cannot find. A home and love. Is that what I've lost? I've got to get there, whatever the cost. Is there a ticket I need to buy to get off this earth and into the sky? I hear there's a God in that ocean of blue. And he's calling and crying for me and you. Is there a ticket I need to buy to get off this earth and into the sky? Patrick wrote that poem and then he carefully pinned it on his shirt. He walked 40 feet from his home and he hanged himself upon a tree. You know, if we fail to accept Christ and, and, and problems come, we're prone to think there's no meaning in life. We need a friend in the wind. We need a savior in the storm. We need a captain in the ship. We need a commander in the vessel. The storm may be furious, but I'd rather ride the storm with Jesus than ride the storm without Jesus. And so the storm is a crisis for the lost man, for the sinner. But notice in verse 26 of our reading tonight that the storm is contained by the Savior. He saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now I want you to notice how the Lord responds when he finally awakes from his sleep, and he deals with the problem at hand. You think about this scene. You know, the, the roar of the waves. You know, if, if you've been on a ship, and uh, you've probably heard all the creaking noises. You know, ships always creak, don't they? Even the big steel ships that we sail out to sea in, in this modern day make the most terrible noises. You know, if you go down beneath uh, into the lower part of the ship, the creaking and the sounds is just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little worrying, isn't it? You feel sometimes the ship is it's going to fall apart and you're going to end up at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, you can imagine this little ship, you know, the waves are pounding against it, the cries of the disciples, you know, trying to get the water uh, back over into the sea where it belonged, the, the crash of thunder, the crack of lightning, the howl of the wind. And all of this, the Lord is asleep. And here's the thing, none of those signs arouse the interest of the Savior. 
He wasn't woken by the storm. You and I have been woke up at times by a storm, haven't we? Maybe you've got out of bed some night to watch the lightning. Or you've been disturbed by the thunder. Or you've been woken by the howl of a gale. But the Lord Jesus wasn't moved by any of those things. Rather, the only thing he heard in the midst of the storm was the cry of his people. Was the prayer of his saints. The Bible says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 50 and Psalm 86 and 7. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee for thou wilt answer me. In Psalm 107, 13. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distress. In the, uh, Psalm 34. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You know our Lord, he knew that storm was coming. When he said to them, get in the ship, we're departing for the other side, he knew the storm was coming. He knew there was a whirlwind that was on target to hit that boat in the depths of Galilee. And yet he permitted that storm. Not only did he permit it, but he led them into the storm. He allowed them to feel its fury. He appears to be unconcerned. He seems unmoved by their predicament. But he was with them in the storm. And as long as he is with them in the storm, there was hope and they were saved. So the Lord stands up and he does the most remarkable thing. He answers their cry and he stills the storm. The Bible says he arose and rebuked the winds. Now think about this for a moment. Isn't that apparently the most ridiculous thing to do? To shout at the wind. I mean, if you were looking out your window in the storm and your neighbor came out and began shouting at the wind, you'd call for the men in white coats to come and take him away, wouldn't you? You'd say there is some fellow who has lost his marbles out here. He's out yelling at the wind. He's telling the wind to stop. Why don't you come and take him away? We need to have him sectioned. He needs to spend a few nights in Harplands and they'll sort him out perhaps. What's the most ridiculous thing at first glance to do? It reminds us of the old story of King Canute. Remember the old English King Canute? And how he, uh, how he was calling upon the sea to go back, the tide uh, to return when it was coming in. And he ended up covered in water. And of course, that's a, that's a legend. It's actually based in fact. Uh, because King Canute was a believer. And his people at the time considered him to be a god, a deity. And actually, he wasn't as mad as the legend suggests. He was actually doing that as an object lesson to his subjects to say to them, look, I have no control over the elements. I am not a god. I'm just a man. Only God can control the tide and conditions. Well, when the Lord arose and rebuked the wind, uh, quite literally, he censured it. He reproached it. He chastised it. He told it off. Now, how can you chastise something as insensible as nature, as the wind? It's, it's like rebuking your car for not working. It's, it's like speaking to these lights because you think they're not bright enough. It makes little sense until you realize, actually, there is something else in this wind. There is a force 
in the air. There is a power in the air. And Ephesians 2 and 2 tells us what that power is. It says, Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. There was something in this wind that was unseen to the natural eye, but well seen by the Lord. Friends, here's what I want you to see. Satan was in that storm. And look at how Jesus rebuked the storm or the power behind the storm. You know, he, he stands up and he cries out according to Mark's gospel, Peace, be still. Now, that's again an understatement in the authorized version. You can try that with your children and your grandchildren when they get naughty. Try a peace be still and see how it goes. <laughs> you know, look at that three-year-old and go, peace, be still. It's not going to happen, is it? Actually, that's not what happened. That's not what the Lord did. Peace be still is, is a very polite way of saying he told the wind to shut up. He stood up and he cried, shut up. Muzzle it is actually what he said. Literally, muzzle it. Put a muzzle on it. Put a sock in it. Knock it off. That's what he yelled. And he spoke to the elements as though they were a dog barking in the night that was a nuisance to its neighbors and needed muzzling. But understand more than that, that's a phrase technically that is used when he dispossesses the demonic when he speaks against the demonic the Lord Jesus often told those who were under demonic uh, influence and who were, who were uh, through whom demons were speaking he often spoke to them in the same way stop it you see all the while you and I may be caught up in a storm in which we're blaming the Lord well, actually, the Lord isn't the cause of your storm at all. The devil is behind your storm. Maybe the devil is behind your storm. You see, the storm is, a, is contained by the Savior, but also the storm is a commentary on our state. Notice what the Lord says to these disciples. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, in verse 26, O ye of little faith? You know, the storms of life, friends, are very revealing. They expose things about us, about our standing and about our state. You know, if you think about the storms in our lives, what did those storms do? Well, those storms tested our property. They tore roofs off our buildings. They knocked down garden fences. They blew over trees. They, uh, you know, they uh, ripped off the asphalt off the top of sheds. Uh, they, they ripped gates off their hinges uh, and all those kinds of things. What does a storm do? A storm exposes poor workmanship. A storm exposes shallow roots if a tree falls. A storm exposes decaying timber. The storms of life are no different. Storms in life often find us out. You know, they reveal our faithlessness. They reveal our weaknesses. The Lord said to them, Why are ye so fearful, O ye of little faith? Now that might seem very harsh. I mean, if you had been in that little boat, out on that turbulent sea, with a tornado roaring down upon you, I don't think you would have been any calmer than these disciples were, and nor would I. We would have been just as alarmed 
at our position as they were. We have been just as fearful as they were. And yet with all, when you think about it in this context, the Lord says, well, you're, you have little faith. Why does he say that? Because they failed to trust his promise. What was his promise? His promise was that they were to depart, listen to the words, unto the other side. He says, we're going to the other side. Now, if the Lord tells you you're going to the other side, guess where you're going? <laughs> you're going to the other side. No matter what the storm throws at you, you're going to the other side. And clearly, that's where he intended them to arrive at. And a storm or no storm, that's where they were going, and that's where he was leading them to. And as he promised it, they would get there in time. Now, if you're in a storm, and if the waves are beating around your head, and you feel like you're going to sink, and you're ready to abandon ship, well, hold on a minute, you'll get there. Listen, if you're in a storm, you'll get there. If the Lord intends you to get through it and out the other side and to a place of safety, you're going to arrive there. But they failed to trust in his promise. And then secondly, they failed to rely on his presence. Here is the thing. He was there with them. The fact that he was there should have calmed them. He was there with them. And he's there with us too in our storms. He's promised never to leave you, nor to forsake you. And then they failed to take account of his power. I mean, they had already witnessed him. How he had healed a leper. How he had healed the nobleman's son. How he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. How he had healed many other people beside. They had seen him at work. They had witnessed his power, his ability to overcome disease and nature when it goes astray. Well, let me ask you this question tonight. Are we willing to trust his power? Is God up to your storm? Is he up to your storm? Do you really feel like your circumstance more than anybody else's circumstance has beaten him? Do you feel that he, never mind you, is overwhelmed by all that you're facing? Do you think that God is in the heavens fretting over your storm, thinking, well, my goodness, I certainly wasn't expecting this? No, not a bit of it. He can just as easily say, peace be still to your storm as he could to their storm and the storm will still you know in the south of France in, in, the, in Brittany in, in the, on the coast of France the fishermen there have a very simple prayer that humbly acknowledges God's control of nature and life it, with this line in the prayer it says God your sea is so great and my boat is so small you think about who created the sea I think the sea is one of the most breathtaking things. When you get down there and you think about the volume of water that a sea or an ocean holds. I mean, uh, when, when we lived in, in Ireland and we went out to the West Coast, sometimes you look out across the Atlantic Ocean and you think the next stop is Canada. And you, you think about that great expanse where there's nothing but water. You're awestruck. And you realize that actually God's sea is great, and we are very small. We're nothing, really. And so, in recognizing that the sea belongs to God, those French fishermen see God as the only source of hope and safety for them in their boats. 
In calming the Sea of Galilee on this occasion, Jesus taught his disciples that he indeed is the one who is the creator of the sea, and he is the one who has power over nature, both the waves themselves as well as the wind that was, that was tearing up the waves. He taught his disciples not only uh, about nature, but he also taught them not just an external lesson concerning their circumstances, but an internal lesson concerning their hearts. The lesson about the external was easy compared to the lesson surrounding the internal. It was easy for him to calm the sea. There was no trouble whatsoever. He stopped the storm. The sea was great, but he is greater. And yet still with all within his disciples' breasts, there beat hearts that were full of fear. Fear had replaced their faith. Let me say to you respectfully that that has happened to some of us in the last 15 months or so or 16 months or however long this thing has been going on. You know, we faced a storm and some people allowed fear to grip their lives. And uh, the pandemic exposed our weaknesses spiritually. You know, I'm very glad that we have the majority of our folks back. But if you remember at the outset of the pandemic, I said to you that some people would be lost in this event, that there would be people who would not survive and would not come out the other side. And there have been some people, a few remarkably, that have not come out the other side, who have disappeared from church, who are now living their lives completely apart from the, the things of God and the way that the Lord would have them to live. Well, look, that's a problem. It, the storm revealed their weakness. Listen, if you're a Christian... And Christ dwells in you. He's the creator of the sea. He's the captain of the ship. He's the savior in the storm. He's the commander of the vessel. He's the one who controls the waves. There is no reason to fear. None. <coughs> and if you're not a Christian, <coughs> well, then you're all alone. You face the storm all alone. It's you against the world. I'd hate to be in that position. Me against the world. And every storm, whatever is nature, becomes a personal battle for survival. And so you need Jesus. You need him as your savior first of all. You need him in your heart, in your life. You need him to deal with your sin. You need him to bring forgiveness to your soul. But then beyond that, you need him to be a real presence in your life. The disciples were able to call on Jesus because he was with them. They were able to see him move in power because he was with them. They were able to experience his peace ultimately because he was with them. Is Christ in your vessel? Because if he isn't, you're in no place to weather the storms of life. Today would be a great day to cry out, Lord, save me. That's the sinner's prayer, isn't it? Lord, save me. If Christ is not in your little ship, if he's not in your little life, let me encourage you this evening to invite him on board. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts tonight. Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll sing our final hymn this evening.